TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What's good, y'all? My name is Chris Milam, and I'm a singer-songwriter-songer-singwriter majored in hyphenate from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm joined in the studio today by the mean, the esteemed, producer Gil. Ladies, Gil's an avid sculptor. He's a volunteer midwife and a kombucha enthusiast. A kombuchiest. You're listening to The Mix. It's an hour-long conversation with fellow artists and producers where I ask one simple question. What songs mean the most to you? My guest today is legendary stack singer and songwriter William Bell. And wow, I can't wait for y'all to hear this. So we'll get there really soon. But first, it's shameless plug time brought to you by Jeremy Piven. Let's take a look at the merch table. We are already in Apple's new and noteworthy podcast, y'all. What the hell? This is awesome. I'm so glad you enjoyed track one with Steve Selvage. Please keep spreading the word. Rate and review The Mix on iTunes or wherever you listen. I want you to review this show just like Gil reviews Kombucha Online. Best booch I've had since the war. Five stars. Memphis listeners can catch me in concert this week. I'm playing Thursday, May 23rd at The Green Room in Crosstown. Also, join the conversation. If you have thoughts on the songs in an episode, ideas for future guests, etc., let me hear it. My email is chris at chrismilam.com. I'm easy to find on social media at Music. I do this show purely because I love talking about songs, so the conversation is truly the whole point. Holler anytime. It's time for a quick ad read. You know what's cool? Knowing stuff. That's why this mix is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash OAM. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Now, let's talk about William Bell. And honestly, I don't know where to start. I could say he's the stack singer-songwriter behind classics, born under a bad sign, trying to love two. Any other way, I forgot to be your lover and featured in this mix, You Don't Miss Your Water. I could say that he had his first hit at age 17 in 1961, and he won the Grammy for Best Americana Album in 2017, and that in the intervening 56 years, his songs have been covered and sampled by seemingly everyone, Jimi Hendrix to Linda Ronstadt, The Birds to Etta James, you name it. That he's performed on every conceivable stage, that his music has reached every corner of the globe. And all of that's true, but none of it's enough. In August of 2017, I was part of an experience via Music Export Memphis. Two Memphis artists, Lenina Smith and me, and two Liverpool artists, Christopher Kennedy and Reed Anderson, collaborated in both of our hometowns. Guiding us through the experience were two, let's call them mentors, uh, one Memphis megasinger, Susan Marshall, and two, Mr. William Bell. So over the course of one magical month, I co-wrote, collaborated, and performed with Mr. Bell. My life, artistically, 
and personally, hasn't been the same since. Day after day, he was the first to arrive, last to leave. He's the most accomplished person in the room and the most approachable. I could rhapsodize about his kindness and humor, his boundless energy and discipline, his enormous generosity, how much he gives to future generations of artists, how that started the day he met his own hero, Sam Cooke. But it's all there in our conversation and, as usual, best told in his words. One final note, for his mix, Mr. Bell sent me seven songs. I also close every mix by asking the guest about a song of theirs that I love, so eight total. You can listen to his full mix on Spotify. That link and the full track list are also in this episode's liner notes. Liner notes. Sure, we're calling them liner notes. Here now, the mix, William Bell. Well, it's an absolute honor to be joined today by Mr. William Bell. How are you doing? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm doing fine. Let's call it an A (laughs) minus. Good, but room for improvement, you know? Good. Yeah. Well, uh, Music Fest brought you into town. Is that right? Yeah, it did. Uh, We had a wonderful concert and uh, the crowd was just uh, over, over the top about it. Yeah. Do you look forward to coming home to Memphis? I do. I do. This is still home. No matter where you are in the world, you know, Memphis is still home. Yeah. That's true. It uh, feels like no matter where I travel, if if I'm somewhere, you know, 15 minutes, I'm probably going to hear some Memphis music. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's all over the world. It's all yeah. over the world. And, yeah. um, of course, your music follows us all, all around the world. So we're uh, about to dive into your mix. You sent me the playlist yesterday and it is a mix that absolutely does not mess around it's just all killer no filler on <laughs> well even as a young kid i um i was kind of strange i listened to everything and mostly the music had something to say you know right uh, about the times or about uh situations right well let's mm-hmm. let's uh set the table a little bit um you were born in 1939 in memphis tennessee absolutely Yes, sir. And uh, what part of town? Uh, John Gaston. I lived in South Memphis for many, many years, and then uh, the family moved to North Memphis. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to start with the first song that you sent me for the mix. Um, you already prefaced it by saying that you were drawn to songs that have something to say. So what better place to start than, of course, the uh, iconic civil rights anthem, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. But I know Yeah, to me that that song got got uh, a lot of people through that era. You know, uh, it says everything that you want to say about hope and uh, positivity and everything. So you've got to look to the future. Yes. Yes, sir. Do you remember the first time you heard it? Uh, I think I was actually on tour the first time I heard it. Okay. Yeah, and. Um, it just resonated with me, and uh, of course, I was a Sam Cooke fan from uh, even when I was singing in gospel in church. So uh, I followed the Soul Stirs and Sam even back then. And when he went into secular music uh, uh, and did his first song, uh, 
of course, I was following him. and But when he came with that one, that was like uh, the ultimate for me. Right. Yeah. You uh, mentioned growing up singing in the church. Was that really your introduction to music? Yeah. 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 Good, good training. You know, I... Um, <laughs> Uh, every Sunday morning, my mom had me in church, and uh, she sang in the choir, and I sang in the choir for a while, and then I kind of graduated uh, singing solo with the choir behind me. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> At what point did you start thinking, well, music might be something I'll pursue for the rest of my life? Uh, I didn't really think in terms of uh, making a career out of it. I would do it for the love of it. I loved singing, and I loved music, listening to it. But uh, I went to see a concert. My dad took me to see a concert with uh, Sam Cooke and I think Solomon Burke and uh, D. Clark and a whole bunch of people at the auditorium. And uh, I sat there and watched that show. And when Sam came on, I sat there and watched uh, him take the crowd just on on a positive elated tour that 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 they followed him he had him in the in the com, uh, palm of his hand mm-hmm. so uh, that kind of solidified me wanting to get into show business right yeah that'll do it that was a <laughs> sam cook solo uh tour he he'd broken off from the soulsters at that yeah point. Okay. yeah and um, at the time i was at the young kid, uh, like 14, I started singing on off Beale Street on Hernando at a club called the Flamingo Room. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, with Phineas Newborn's orchestra and uh, a lot of other young musicians that went on to fame and fortune, Hank Crawford and Charles Lloyd and all those guys. They were had come through the band at one time. Yeah. What was the experience like singing uh, downtown as a teenager? Well, it was wonderful. I mean, I was wide-eyed and, and, <laughs> and, and everything. And uh, uh, old man Phineas had to get permission from my mom for me to sing on the weekends. I could only sing Friday night, Saturday night. And uh-huh. the stipulation for mom was as long as he's ready to go to church on Sunday morning, I don't care what time Saturday he comes in. <laughs> okay. And, of course, I agreed to it. And uh, old man Phineas had... Uh, couple of his kids and Phineas Jr. and 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 uh, all of that and Calvin in his band and he told my mom that he would take care of me the same as he would his own so uh, she let me sing there and he was good to his word oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh were there ever nights where you just stayed up and went straight to church <laughs> uh, uh, there were a few yeah yeah well that's kind of a dual education isn't it singing singing downtown saturday night and then singing in the church sunday morning yeah yeah it it, it was fun though um you know it singing in a nightclub is a whole lot different from singing in church i had to um sit backstage and they would bring me a coke or something back there and I sit back there and have a drink of Coca Cola, and um, then the band would play thirty minutes, and I would come on and do fifteen. Okay. And so that was the forty-five minute set. We'd take a break. We did four sets a night. Oh wow! <laughs> so, but it was good training for a young kid. I would imagine so. That'll build up the vocal cords. Oh yeah, and uh, uh, stage training. I was like on the job trainee. Uh, right. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I've I've always been fascinated by. Uh 
the Beatles and um, and reading about their history, it seems like uh, they had kind of a similar experience when they were playing the clubs in Hamburg, Germany. You know, they were just playing hours and hours and hours of, on end and not only working up original material, but just an insane catalog of covers. And that was really the, the crucible right. that made them so ready for the road in the recording studio. Absolutely. And, I mean, um, there are some things you can't get out of a book. You know, it's a lot mm. of trial and error things. And uh, I had some great uh, mentors, including uh, Phineas Jr. and uh, old man Phineas. And uh, then uh, they had characters from Memphis in the band, uh, Bowlegs Miller and Honeymoon Garner on organ. And uh, during rehearsals and everything, they would, make me stay after rehearsals and learn certain chords on the piano and sing certain passages on uh, standard songs and old songs and stuff. And right. It was wonderful. Yeah. Well, we've, we've already touched on um, how you got started in singing. Uh, I'll go ahead and give a little bit of context to the listener. The last time I saw you was in an airport in England. Uh, this is August of 2017. And of course, I've known your your music since I was a child and I've been a lifelong fan and I was lucky enough to be a part of this collaboration let's say yeah, yeah collaboration yeah. between um, Memphis artists and Liverpool artists yeah songwriters and, yeah right and uh, over the course of about a week in Memphis and about a week in Liverpool we were able to um, collaborate write songs together and perform together and uh kind of ushering us through the process were musical mentors and uh, one of them being Susan Marshall, a uh, famed Memphis singer and the other being you. And um, that was a really formative and important experience for me in a lot of ways. But um, it was, uh, it was such an education watching you, watching you work. <laughs> and you know, I love doing that uh, because you have to pass that torch on to the youngsters and you gather the future, you know, uh, we had a, a great time, as you know, uh, right. and accomplished some great work. There, there some great songs that came out of those sessions. I think so. I still, yeah. I'm still getting requests for the one that you and I wrote together. Uh, I ain't sleeping anyway. Right. Okay. <laughs> cool, yes, sir. Um, but well, it what reminded me of that was you talking about singing. Um, do you remember me asking you for tips about uh, vocal health? Yeah, yeah. So when we were walking to um, the cemetery in Liverpool to visit the the tombstone of Eleanor Rigby, where that inspired the Beatles song, um, I asked you if you had any tips for vocal health because your voice sounds stronger today uh, than it ever has. And your answer was good cognac. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that's part of a every blues singer or a soul singer, you know. But uh, yeah, you have to. Uh, be uh, conscious of taking care of your voice and your vocal cords and everything. And uh, rest is one of the key things. And, of course, uh, we do vocal exercises from time to time and stuff like that. But um, And then, you know, just uh, making sure that uh, you know how to sing. You know, and uh, how to project those notes and everything rather than singing from the throat all the time. So much from, from the diaphragm, you know, you got to bring it up. Right. Um, but um, most of it is just uh, 
taking care of the vocal cords in ways of hot teas and honey and stuff like that. Uh, that that's a good remedy, instant remedy for it. But uh, uh, a rest is the main remedy. Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, we've already touched on uh, Sam Cooke and the Soulsters, so why not move on to the next track on your mix? This is the Soulsters. Uh, touch the hem of his garment. Still, he turned around and cried. Somebody touch me. She said it was I who just want to touch the hem of your garment. I know I'll be made whole right now. She stood there crying, oh. It is. Uh, I... When I was in church, I, I loved that song. Um, it was such a song about faith. Mm. And uh, the way Sam sang it, uh, it was just, uh, it would uplift you. Mm. And uh, we uh, listened to it over and over. Sometimes I bought, I don't know how many copies, uh <laughs> <laughs> Even some of the Soulsters uh, works to hear him on it, and uh, uh, if you're spiritually inclined, mm -hmm. that song will just uplift you. Yes. How much does uh, how much does gospel music impact your work today? Very much so. Yeah. Um, that's what soul music is all about. I mm. think. Uh, most singers, uh, when you hear them, that they can uh, draw an emotion from you, whether it's country, uh, soul music, or pop, or whatever it is. If you look into their background, they were at one time or another a singer in church, which mm. uh, means that you know how to deliver a lyric for the impact of the, the, the uh, emotional range of the lyric and the song. Uh, breathing and and techniques that 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 you wouldn't learn other than just singing live in a club uh, and trial and error. Right. But uh, gospel music teaches you all of that. Mainly, though, it's the emotional range of a story. Right. And um, I uh, learned a lot in the, the years that I was there. I was there from like uh, seven years old until. I started singing in in the clubs and everything, and then part-time in church then. So I was there until I was around uh, 15, 16, but I still love gospel music. Uh, I love the harmonies and everything mm. that the old gospel groups like uh, the Highway QCs, the Soul Stirs, and right. all those guys had, and... Uh, so that was instrumental in, in my upbringing, and um, I still do it today. And, and at some point in a song, I'll get emotionally involved in it, and some mm. of the gospel comes out. Yeah, it just overtakes you. Yeah, I it think does. It, I think if it's working the way it ought to, it it really does. The spirit moves you, so to speak, it, and, and it even does. in secular music and 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 proper soul music, you feel it as much as as uh, anything else. Absolutely, yeah. That's why they say, yeah, soul singers never sing the same very uh, the verse of a song the same way because you feel that emotional thing 
on an instant that you're doing the song. And right. uh, so it's you have a basic foundation for the melodic structure and all that. But then when you start really digging into the lyrical content and everything, uh, each time you do it, it's going to come off a little bit differently. Right. Yeah. Another guest of The Mixed is um, Memphis music producer Jeff Powell. Have you ever worked with Jeff? I haven't worked with Jeff, but okay. I'm familiar with him, yeah. Right. Well, he he yeah. was there in Liverpool with us. He's married to Susan Marshall. And he, uh, for his mix, mentioned the Edwin Hawkins singers, Oh Happy Day, their, their version of Oh Happy Day. And speaking as a music producer, he said it's a really bad sounding recording. It wasn't recorded properly at all, but it doesn't matter because right. the performance is so overwhelming. It just takes you. Yeah. It, and a lot of that happens. A lot of the iconic songs uh, in soul music and a lot of recordings, uh, it's not perfect. It's mm. not, you know, but uh, they leave it in there because the emotional value of how it was done, uh, if your voice cracked just a little bit on a note, right. it added to the intensity of the song. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, uh Moving through the early 60s, um, let's talk about another song that certainly had something to say uh, of its time and any time. The next song in your mix is Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yeah, that song itself uh, was one of my favorites because... It just defines how you look at an individual or yourself and how you determine what ingredients make up a man mm. uh, or woman, you know. And there is no one ingredient. So that's mm. why I said it's blowing in the wind. There are any number of things that make, make that up. Uh, but blowing in the wind was one of the songs that uh, – I always loved about from Bob, um, and it was like during the civil rights struggle, it was important because he delves into a lot of issues concerning that, you know. Right. And uh, ironically, when I had a, an occasion to talk to Sam Cooke once, that's why he wrote uh, A Change Is Gonna Come. Wow. Because okay. he had heard Blowing in the Wind and loved it. And he said, that's like the best song ever written. Mm. And he was competitive. He wanted to write a song up to the same uh, stature of Blowing in the Wind. Right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so. And did. <laughs> and did, yeah. yeah. Um, so if you've got to shoot for something to, to, uh, compete with right that's a good thing to do um but uh, he was telling me that's uh, when he was working on uh, a change is gonna come that was why he worked wrote that song because he wanted to compete with that level of song for the movement as blowing in the wind yeah when did you meet him uh years ago at the end of uh, well he was friends with my manager, and I'm my management was in Atlanta, so I, I was in and out of Atlanta a lot. And he worked the the there's a club there called the Royal Peacock. Okay. And um, Sam would work there rather than working <laughs> the 
the auditorium of the Phillips Arena sometimes as well. He and my management were very close. Mm. Uh, my manager at the time was Henry Wynn, who was like one of the top promoters in the country. Okay. And Sam worked a lot of dates, uh, concert dates for Henry. And so he would come to Atlanta and I met him in Atlanta to work, uh, when he was working the Peacock and we had an occasion to have, uh, dinner at Henry's place, uh, once. And we talked, uh, extensively about business stuff because I was always interested in the behind the scenes aspect of music. Okay. And so I got a lot of tips about starting your own publishing companies and starting your own record labels. And because at the time, you know, a young kid didn't know anything about you can make money off publishing. Right. But, uh, and he was groundbreaking. On yeah, the he was side. groundbreaking yeah. at that. One of the first ones. As a matter of fact, a lot of other entertainers laughed at me. You're crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> but he was right on. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. When you, when you met him, were you starstruck? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he was down earth. Really nice guy down earth. Whether it was because I, I was also managed by Henry or not, I don't know. But, right. But he was never one of those guys that you could not approach. Right. You know, and uh, I had a, an occasion, uh, Peter Goralnik wrote a book called Dream Boogie, mm. and he had a, a tribute to Sam, and I had occasion to go on the road and uh, do some tribute dates, me and Lou Rawls and okay. uh, couple of the soulsters and that was still alive there. I met I got a chance to meet Sam's family and all of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was curious about um meeting him as someone that you grew up admiring his music because and I'm I'm heartened to hear that he was very generous and and uh grounded around you because, you know, myself included, I'm sure that you've met a lot of younger artists who admire you and have looked up to you and your music for a long time and you've certainly paid that forward. You're always very generous and, and kind and uh, able to offer guidance. <laughs> to, well, to that's one of the measurements of being a man. Mm. You know, you uh, we're in the same industry, so right. <laughs> we're doing the same thing. It's just that I've attained success, and you have to give back. So mm. I like working with the youngsters, and I work with the Stax kids a lot and, and uh, have been for years. Um. And, and that's what it's all about. You pass that torch on. These older musicians, as I said, passed the torch down to me. Right. And they would, uh, they were hard on me. You know, they would tell me, well, you missed a cue on that song. And now we sit here and we record that. Now when you go home and do your homework, when we come back to the next rehearsal, don't miss that cue, you know. Right. And, and that helped tremendously. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that you learn, that carries throughout your career, you know, right. you, stage presence and all of that. It all works within in the structure of you. Right. And uh, so that's what I like about uh, working with guys like you and, and young artists and g- girls and stuff. So it's like just to, to be able to see that light in your eyes when you light up and say, oh, man, you know. <laughs> right. Because I was the same way with uh, Sam and some other artists, Jackie Wilson, some of the artists mm-hmm. I had a, an occasion to work with. It's like my first record, I was only had one record, so I was an opening act for some of the tours. Okay. But they were just as nice and everything, you know. Right. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you mentioned competitiveness earlier. How competitive were you with, say, other uh, stacks? songwriters oh very very uh, yeah yeah we we were a family mm-hmm. and we genuinely wanted to have everybody within the family structure every artist every writer to have something on the charts and have a hit record out mm-hmm. and uh, that's why i wound up uh, with booker and, and some other writers and steve writing uh for different artists okay. because they would say um uh, Otis is coming in next week for a session. You've got anything that you can present to him. And you wanted him to have a hit, you know, right. uh, even though Otis wrote most of his own stuff. But uh, uh, and uh, we were competitive, both uh, in the studios for writing and, and recording. Uh, but it was a friendly competition. Right. Nothing, you know, and, and if uh, someone gave you uh some kind of advice or something you took it uh with that in mind that uh you know if, if you're critiqued on something it's for your own good so right. and, and so um we took that uh, always as a friendly gesture and uh that you want me to be the st- be the best that i can be right and uh but the competition was there on stage and in the studio yeah Right. Well, I wonder, we've already talked about blowing in the wind. We've talked about a change is going to come. You, uh, as the 60s move on, you write about what's going on in the world, songs like Marching Off to War. Um, was that kind of conscious as it was going? I, I want to write songs that are about what's happening right now. No, it, okay. that was real. I was uh, drafted after the second song that I had with Stax. Right. I had two hit records on, on the charts. And, uh, of course, I dropped out of uh, school and I had to, out of college, and uh, had to uh, just uh, adapt, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, so coming home on furlough after basic training, uh Stax wanted me to write up enough stuff to have for releases uh, while I was in the military. So uh, marching off to war was uh, a thing that we did. And I did some stuff with Steve Cropper, with Booker, mm. Lonely Soldier, and all that. And um, that was uh, real, though. I mean, you know, I was actually in the military right. and when I was writing and recording this stuff, yeah. Right. Um, how long were you in the military? I know that we've talked about this off mic before, but yeah, two years, uh, okay. I was drafted. I was doing the draft. Okay. And, um, I had uh, dropped out of school to, uh, make money. You know, when you're in, in college, are you in school and you have a chance to make a lot of money? And I had, uh, uh, performance dates for nine, 10 months ahead, you know? Right. And, um, so I wanted to say, okay, I can come back next semester and everything. So, but when I dropped out, of course, the draft board mm-hmm. grabbed me, and uh, I was off to the military, and I stayed overseas for a year and a half after basic training. Uh, came back, of course, to stacks. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Your debut single came out in 1961. That's "You Don't Miss Your Water," which we'll come back to. Your debut album came out in 1967. In between. You uh, had a stint in the military, as you say, but of course your your friends and label mates and stacks are 
achieving a lot of success. What was it like kind of processing that time in the military when you felt a little bit removed from the things that were going on at Stax? Well, it was, it was a necessity. I was in the military, so uh, I just made the best of it. Right. And, uh, of course, when I came out, uh, Stax uh, honored my contract retroactively from the time I went in. So when I came out, okay. uh, of course, Rufus was a big star, and Carla and Otis Redding, Sam and Dave. So I had to play catch-up. I was at the bottom of the totem, totem pole. <laughs> And, um, but, um, it was cool. I mean, it, it, it that's the, one of the tests of the measure of a man mm. <laughs> or woman. Right. When, uh, when you're down, you, uh, want to see if you've got the, the, the fortitude to pick yourself up and, and keep going. Um, and at, at one point I said, well, I will go back to school on a, the GI Bill and all that stuff, and then, but uh, they were saying, "No, man, you you got to come back, you know, and start recording and everything." And okay, so um, for the first couple of releases, we didn't have a major hit, mm. and so bless Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, and I asked both of them if I could uh, glue my ears to the American music charts and, mm -hmm. and everything and radio to get a feel for what was current with the music here because I had been overseas for a year and a half. Right. And uh, they were gracious enough to let me do that. And uh, then uh, I knew a lot of the writers and everything were giving me songs and stuff that just didn't fit. They were great songs. Some of the right songs went on to become hits for some of the other artists, but right. they just didn't fit me. So I sat and wrote Everybody Loves a Winner. Mm. And that was the first one that started me back. It was a hit record and started me back out. And uh, uh, they put me and Otis on uh, some shows together, and we became good friends. And I actually toured about a year together as a two-act package with, with band and all. So, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He, of course, also has a remarkable version of A Change Is Gonna Come. Did you ever cut A Change Is Gonna Come? I did not. Uh, I, I I did one of, uh, uh, I think I did one of Otis's songs, so, and he did You Don't Miss Your Water in right. Return. Right. But uh, I never cut A Change Is Gonna Come, okay. uh, and I don't know why. I just, I just didn't ever think that I would maybe, now that I think about it, <laughs> come up to the quality that Sam had done with it. Huh. Maybe that's it. I don't know. And I didn't want to be disappointed that ah, I didn't quite make that, you know. But um, I love that song. And mm. to, even today, it holds up just like blowing in the wind. I mean, uh, the times, it, it, it transcends the times. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. let's, uh, let's talk about another classic. This is Nat King Cole's Unforgettable. It's incredible. That someone so unforgettable Thinks that I am unforgettable too Yeah, I was probably six years old. Okay. That was the first album that I bought. 
And I was a strange kid. Uh, I was a daydreamer because I was an only kid for 10 years. Okay. And um, I heard this song on the radio, and uh, I don't know why, but as even as a young kid, I just loved that song. So I saved up my little allowances and everything, and, and then my mom took me downtown, and I saw this in a record store and bought it. Mm. And we had those little record players then. They were like little suitcase things. Okay, <laughs> right. And I would play that over and over. And uh, sometimes mom would come upstairs and make me shut it off and go to bed. You know, and I would pull the covers over and play it some more. But I love that record, and um, that was one of my favorite things uh, by Nat Cole. Yeah, but I I bought stuff from uh, Montevarney and people like that as a young kid because I was a daydreamer, and I wanted to listen to the violins and things that would take me in, in at, to a different place. Right. And I was always listening to that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's fascinating. I wonder I wonder how that impacted you later as a songwriter. Like all those sounds kind of seeping in at an early age just kind of marinated for a while. Yeah, it did. And <laughs> um, actually, I was the first act that used violins, Noel Gilbert and the guys, uh, on a record. I, uh, I've, uh, I've, mm, I forgot to be a lover. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And um, it was weird because uh, I don't think that Jim or the people that stack knew how it was going to come out putting a violin on a, on a soul record. But right. I, I wanted to do it. And uh, I had heard some things in concerts with some other acts that had uh, soul acts that had uh, Benny King and a couple of other acts that had violins on that stuff. And I wanted to put some violins on it. Right. Yeah. Listening to your mix, um, it's funny that you mentioned that about uh, Sam Cooke and, and not having cut a version of A Change Is Gonna Come yet, listening to Nat King Cole. I hear the ways that these men and others have influenced you maybe a little bit as a singer over the years, but as I was listening to all these songs in a row, I was just naturally going, oh, I, I could hear Mr. Bell cover this. I could, I could definitely hear a version <laughs> by you well, for all these songs. Um, according to, um, LC sounds brother, he said that, uh, after we did on the tour for the tribute, we did all Sam Cook songs mm -hmm. and I did a couple of songs by Sam on that. And, um, uh, they all came backstage and LC said, I watched you on stage and you reminded me of Sam so much and you, you said you got that same persona and it was such a tribute right. for me but I'm I wasn't aware of it I'm saying okay <laughs> but I've heard that a couple of times I know I was influenced by him on a lot of stuff mm. uh, even when I was singing up at Flamingo Room between me and Lewis Williams we did all of Sam Cooke's stuff <laughs> okay and um so um I was influenced by him and um uh, I was not conscious of that, but I guess uh, if you're influenced that much by somebody, right. some of it through osmosis, it seeps in, you know. Right. Yeah. In hindsight, are there any other singers who 
might have influenced you as much at that age? Oh, um, phrasing by, uh, and this is going to shock you, Frank Sinatra. Okay. I listened to Frank, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra. Uh, the Rat Pack was big when I was <laughs> growing up. Right. And um, that was always, uh, I, I listened to those guys and how they phrased and how they treated uh, uh, swing lyrics and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Because on Sundays, we had what we called uh, fashion shows, tea dances down at the Flamingo Room. Right. And I did a solo effort with the band down there doing standards and stuff like that. And so... I would listen to all kinds of stuff and how they phrased and right. Joe Williams like that. All those guys. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can definitely hear that because when I listen to, to your records and your voice, it's not only uh, one of my favorite voices in the history of American pop music, but you, you get a sense of the man attached to the voice. And in the same way that when you listen to Frank Sinatra, you're not just hearing a great voice, you're hearing Frank Sinatra and, and kind of, everything that he personally brings into that song and that performance. Yeah, the persona and and everything right. goes with it. Um, and that was one of the things I loved about uh, those guys. They had style. Right. You know, and um, I always loved that about them. And they were so classy and they had fun on stage. Right. And that's what I try to bring to in my performances. You certainly do. Yeah. The Mix is also brought to you by our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. Open seven days a week at 1916 Madison Avenue in the heart of Midtown Memphis. Shangri-La recently celebrated 30 years of slinging music from Memphis, the Delta region, and beyond. The shop is stacked with killer records from classic labels like Stax, Sun, High, Chess, Motown, Atlantic, and Blue Note, to modern indie labels like Secretly Canadian, Matador, Fat Possum, Light in the Attic, Third Man, and many more. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or shop online and sign up for the store newsletter at Shangri.com to keep up with events and sales. Well, I want to ask you next about Bob Marley's One Love. This is off Exodus, of course, in 1977. Where were you in 1977? Uh, I had traveled. Uh, I was Performing and okay. traveling. Um, and I went to Jamaica. Okay. And, uh, of course, uh, I heard all of these great Jamaican songs. And oddly enough, I found out that uh, there were a couple of... Uh, Ziggy had uh, done one of my tunes. And I'm going, okay, so... But Bob was, uh, to me, a revolutionary. Mm. And uh, that song, One Love, was about getting people together, bringing people together. And if, you, if we get together, we'll be all right. And uh, it was one of those tunes that just, uh, I love the rhythmic concept on mm -hmm. it, and I love reggae anyway. And uh, when I heard it, uh Immediately, of course, I went out and bought Bob Marley's record. <laughs> right. I had to have it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you mentioned going from uh, 
Memphis to Atlanta at a certain point. And of course, your management was in Atlanta. What what accounted for that move at the time? Uh, Stax had gone under and, and filed bankruptcy mm-hmm. uh, in the early 70s. Right. And as young kids, when we first went to Stax, we didn't ever think it would end. So um, I was really just, it was a downtime, you know, down, disappointed. Right and saddened uh, about that situation. And so Booker had moved to L.A., and I went out there to see if I wanted to move to L.A., and I just didn't really want to move to L.A., and it was not my vibe out there. Me either. So (laughs) I um, came back to Atlanta, and I always loved Atlanta. It's a lot like Memphis. Mm Mm-hmm. And my management said, well, why don't you think in terms of moving to Atlanta? And I didn't know if I wanted to do that because I had been in Memphis so long, started my career, and I loved being at Stacks. We spent so many hours and in, in, in starting your career and all that. And uh, so I said, let me just come out and see if I like it. So I went to Atlanta and bought an efficiency, well, it rented an efficiency apartment and uh, stayed for a year Okay, <laughs> and spent so much money <laughs> in an efficiency apartment. I said, well, if I'm going to move out here, I might as well buy a home. Right. So I started looking for a home and I finally found one and uh, moved to Atlanta, but I still had a home here. Okay. <laughs> so I was ping ponging back and forth for uh, two or three years and, uh, Finally, just sold the one here and, and, and moved out to Atlanta. But uh, it was a hard thing to do. When Stacks went under, though, I had to just, I needed a change of scenery. Right. Yeah. Understandably. Yeah. Between uh, ping pong and back and forth between Atlanta and Memphis and your uh, contemporary hit in 1976, uh, Trying to Love Too, I think I'm, I'm noticing a theme. <laughs> it's kind of... Juggling two things at once. Yeah, that, that absolutely. Um, you know, when I left uh, uh, Memphis, I didn't think I was going to uh, continue in the music business. Wow. I was just disillusioned that stacks went on. We, ne- we didn't think that would ever end, you know, as mm-hmm. young kids. Um, so what I did was I just stopped recording totally for about three years. And uh, I enrolled into the Academy Theater in uh, Atlanta and started acting. And that's when uh, Samuel was getting out of college and everything. So did a couple of little uh, bit parts in a movie called Together for Days with Samuel and Lois Child and some other actors. Okay. And um, Charles Fash from Mercury um, was calling, and he was a good friend. And I started a a record label called the Peachtree Records Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. And I was actually writing and recording other artists, but not myself. Mm. And Charles said, I would love to work with you. Why don't you do something? And I just resisted it. I said, nah, I don't think so. I'm going to act and all of this. And so finally, 
uh, he was persistent, and he came to Atlanta and just to get him off my back, more or less. <laughs> I agreed to do uh, four songs. Okay. And he said, great, that's a start, and uh, you've got carte blanche or whatever you want to do. So I, I didn't even have the songs. I had to sit down and write four brand-new songs for myself. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't... Uh, get into a, a studio that I wanted in Memphis to record them because everybody was busy and mm-hmm. booked up. And so I went, called Alan Toussaint down in uh, New Orleans sure. and went down to see Saint and recorded them and with a, a a group of musicians he put together for me. And put my vocals down, did the rhythm section, went back to Atlanta, put strings and back of voices and all that stuff on and, and mixed. Uh, but it was, I lucked out because uh, Ronnie Capone was in Atlanta at the time working at a studio okay. and he had worked with Thax for years. Right. So I found out Ronnie was there and I said, Ronnie, I've got this, these things I want to complete. So I want, I want to work with you. So uh, I, I uh, rented the studio, did it, and make a long story short, Trying to Love 2 was one of the four songs that I uh, gotcha. cut. And lo and behold, uh, my first million seller record wow. on me instantly. Like uh, the others have gone on to be, be million sellers and stuff, but right. but this was the first biggie for me after leaving Stax. Right. And I it was on Mercury, of course, and uh, uh, we hit the ball out of the park on the first try, and sure that's did. why I went back into show business. There you go. That'll yeah. do it. You yeah. got another number one hit on the chart. Yeah. Yeah. Might as well. <laughs> um, well, I, I definitely uh, would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world. Um, this came out in 1967. I see them blue. Me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. That's the best feel-good song in the world. It is. Amen. I mean, you cannot hear "Wonderful World" without feeling good. Uh, and Lewis' version was my favorite version. I mean, there mm-hmm. are many versions out there, but there's something about his version and his voice on that song that just works for me. Um, but that's why I love that song, because if I'm feeling down about something or whatever it is, I put on Wonderful World, and I'm, I'm back up again. You know, it's like a shot in the arm. Yeah. I mean, it... it- it's what I imagine you hear at the pearly gates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like heaven in a way. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that about. Um, if you're down, it picks you back up again. Uh, notably, throughout your mix, we we have a lot of. Um, well, it's it's a pretty good blend, but we do we definitely have songs that convey happiness, hopefulness, um, optimism. But some of your most notable songs are. Um, Maybe have some bittersweet elements to it. Maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, born under a bad uh, bad sign. It isn't necessarily about a happy ending. <laughs> let's say to, to say the least. So I'm I'm wondering if maybe something about your own songwriting naturally gravitates towards darker material. Well, I um, 
usually write about uh, truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I believe people will uh, identify with truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they hear a song that uh, people can say, I could have written that because I've lived that or I know somebody with that's going through that. And uh, that's how I write from experience, uh, from observation sometimes. And even if it's hypothetical, I just uh, try to write from a standpoint of how I would react or feel if that were, you know, were me. So uh, I write about truth. That's why uh, it feels like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Louis Armstrong, version of What a Wonderful World came out in 1967 that's one of the most violent and turbulent years in our nation's history um and then we have this incredible piece of music that's music. that's filled with happiness and hope yes um how did how did you did you love that song in the moment in the moment the yeah. first moment i heard it yeah it i felt when it was over you know i was saddened that it, it didn't continue it 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 just made you feel good mm-hmm. and when i look at it i'm saying yeah with all of the things that are going on the world is a wonderful world you know wow. you, uh nature mother nature uh, and everything is and you wonder why there are wars and why there are uh, uh discriminations and all of this stuff because if you just live for life right it's so good. It's so wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about Willie Nelson's You Were Always On My Mind. You were always on my mind. You were always on my mind. His version came out in 1982. Um, now, a lot of people have done versions of You Were Always On My Mind or Always On My Mind, originally written by B.J. Thomas. Of course, Elvis did a version in 1972, a decade prior to Willie. What is it about Willie's version that speaks to you? His authenticity of mm. how he presented and, and wrote, did the song. Uh, that song itself is one of the best written love songs, right. especially in the kind of business I'm in. You know, no matter where you are, you leave someone you love behind. But they're on your mind, you know, no matter whether you're traveling or whatever it is, uh, even home, you know. And for that song, you listen to it lyrically, that says everything about uh, another individual loving another person. You know, it's like you're always on my mind. Right. Have you ever met Willie? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> performed together? I've never performed with him, uh-huh. but a good friend of mine uh, is working with him as one of his singers, Francine Reed. So okay. uh, she and I are good friends. But, I, yeah, I've met Willie and a uh, uh, wonderful person. Uh, he's another one of those people out of Austin, Texas, that are just fabulous. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, you know, Austin turns out some great people too i mean gary clark jr's from austin uh and willie nelson and uh steve ray vaughn oh yeah you know, i'm going wow there's something in the water down there you know? right <laughs> right it's an, it's uh it's not always the case when i travel around but some cities really do kind of have their own indigenous music culture yeah. memphis being one yeah of course. Yeah. yeah oh yeah memphis is just a melting pot of 
phenomenal talent mm. uh and all kinds and we we're ex- influenced by everything because we hear everything in this region you know right. and whether it's country rock and roll funk jazz gospel right soul i mean it's all here and in the early years you heard everything on the on one radio station you know okay dewey phillips would play everything uh <laughs> wdia would play everything and you for one part of the day you'd hear gospel the next part you hear blues the next part you'd hear country right so, and that to me is uh what makes a city well-rounded musically right you know because you can appreciate all kinds yeah you you really do kind of get that distinct melting pot atmosphere that produces its own special flavor at the end yeah of it, you know yeah and then nashville of course with wlac up there mm. and many hours during the traveling and touring and everything you could catch wlac all across the country late at night and and then they would be playing stacked songs of Motown or just great songs, you know. Right. And, and uh, those kind of days are kind of lost right now, and I wish they would come back, you know. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah. The, the, I, I am actually old enough to have grown up uh, listening to Top 40 Radio and having some of that shared experience. There was one uh, radio station here in Memphis called 96 Sex that was kind of like a rock alternative right. station. and um yeah, I, I definitely had that experience growing up with my friends where we were all listening to the same song in the same moment, although we were at different houses or different cars yeah. or whatever. And uh, you do miss that shared moment oh, of experience man. with everybody. And there were groundbreaking uh, DJs, you know, Dewey Phillips, <laughs> Red Hot and Blue. Right. I mean, you cannot, and my buddy George, George Klein, uh, mm. for years when I was, you know, Coming along, he would have us. I had a vocal group called the Del Rios, and he would have us on his Christmas shows. And this was like early on during segregation. This was before the times when everything was cool. You know, it's right. like, and uh, and Dewey would play all kinds of music, and people would call in, and he didn't care. Like when Elvis came out, he went and Elvis record, he played it. You right, know? and that's what music is all about you know it 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 it, because music is the melting pot that it's that magnet that that pulls people together right well i close every episode by asking the guest about a song of theirs that i admire uh it was a nearly impossible task to winnow it down to just one but um i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you about you don't miss your water Uh, that is a good question. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's my very first record. Uh, I was on tour uh, probably about 17 years old when I wrote it uh, in New York uh, with Old Man Phineas's band and we had a day off and it was raining and I was sitting in the hotel room and missing my lady and all this <laughs> stuff. And 
uh, this song just came to me, the lyrically came to me, and being right out of church, you know, in the gospel feel. And when I came home, uh, of course, uh, a couple of people in the group were older and they were drafted. And Chip Smolman asked me if I wanted to record a solo project. And uh, I didn't know if I wanted to do anything, you know, and I, said, I don't know. So he finally convinced me and I said, okay, I've got four songs here I've written. Mm-hmm. And I'll record those, and and that's what I did. I recorded uh, "You Don't Miss Your Water" and any other way, and two other songs. And uh, you've got good look, good luck doing four songs at a time, don't you? <laughs> I, I, I have. I got <laughs> got to keep that in mind too. Right. But um, it uh, came out, I think, in december really the early part of no latter part of november early part of december and um it played for a couple of weeks and then christmas music came in but every now and then one of the jocks from dia or lok they would spin it Mm. and i i didn't think anything that much was going to happen you know like i'd recorded some other stuff with media records and stuff so i said well at least I recorded and I did what Chips wanted me to do. But come January, all of the jocks started playing it uh, like every hour on the hour. Wow. And uh, it uh, just blossomed from there. It just mushroomed. And uh, it was my first big major hit. Mm. And Stax's first national big major hit on that on the charts for Stax Records. So right. we, we both grew with that. <laughs> right. So I've, I've loved that song um, as far back as I have memories of listening to music. Um, but I wanted to ask you about it today because now I'm lucky enough to have some per- personal attachment to it. Uh, we started our collaboration in 2017 in Memphis, uh, writing and, and performing together at Art. Right. And then um, at the end of that month, we all reconvened in Liverpool and kind of did the same thing in Liverpool. And um, in between those two uh, trips for everybody, I ended a relationship. And when the big finale concert finally came, um, and I think you kicked it off. We were all up on stage at the Liverpool Philharmonic, great crowd. And I think you kicked it off by singing You Don't Miss Your Water, which you had done a few weeks prior at Ardent in Memphis too. Right. And it's a showstopper and you absolutely bring the house down. But the second time you did it coming off a breakup on stage, I was a wreck. (laughs) I just completely melted and still had to go on and sing like three more songs after that. And and, and remember I'm on stage and I got to play a show. But I mean, that song is timeless and as resonant today as the first time I heard it, you know, when I was a child, um, it's amazing to me that you wrote it at age 17 because it has such wisdom and circumspection. Where do you think that came from at that age? Like I said, I was an only child uh, until I was 10 years old. So I was constantly surrounded by grownups. Mm. And uh, I heard my grandfather say that all the time. And uh, I didn't know what it meant at the time, right, you right. know, but it just, like I said, kids it's amazing you have to watch what you say around kids because they 
take it all in and, right. and soak it up, and they never forget. And that's that that saying always stayed with me. Right. And uh, so I don't know why. Maybe it's the gospel thing, but uh, when I was up in New York, sitting in that hotel room. That uh, saying just popped into my mind, and that's why I wrote that song. You know, it's like, it it's such a an iconic statement. Right. It, it, it says so much in so few words. Right. <laughs> and that's something that's true, I, I think, throughout your entire catalog. Um, I wrote down that, I mean, first of all, I love your lyrics, and I think that your lyrics are poetry. Um but they tend to find the poetry in those everyday expressions. And I think in some cases you've, uh, your poetry has created some new everyday expressions. Um, but it's something that I can say, uh, I can pinpoint from your songs that has it directly impacted mine. I, I have songs that are written around commonplace everyday sayings. And I try to kind of expand on that idea. A song called tell me something I don't know, for example, um, that that's something I'm always thinking about now because there, there is poetry in the way that people speak every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You just have to listen. And if you're a, a people person, um, mm-hmm. watch people and everything, um, you can pick up a lot of just great song ideas from just uh, observation. Right. Yeah. I have one more question for you. Um, we've talked about You Don't Miss Your Water. That was your debut single. came out in 1961. You won... Uh, Grammy for Best Americana album in 2017. So you've been making popular and important and relevant music for over 50 years now. What's the secret? <laughs> I mean, that's something that can be said of so few artists. Uh, I don't know. I, it, I really hadn't thought about it. I mean, other than my career has been wonderful. I've got some great fans and and people behind the scenes that work hard, you know, in this mm-hmm. industry. But uh, I just try to do everything uh, to the best of my ability. And uh, I try to write honestly and mm-hmm. truthfully when I write. Uh, I've had some good collaborators like Mark Cohen was on uh, The Three of Me, which uh, right. which was the single from that uh this is where I live, the single that I won. I mean, the album I won, the Americana right. Grammy on. Um, and uh, I, w- I had, uh, I've had pleasures of working with just some iconic producers and co-producers and musicians. Uh, right. You, you, you got to give them credit for that. Um, starting off with, Chip Moleman back mm-hmm. in the 60s for my first uh, single. Then Booker and I became a, a team at Stax, and we had super success. And then John Leventhal, okay. uh, who, who, of course, is Johnny Cash's son-in-law. He's married to Roseanne. you right. know. And uh, I worked with him uh, on a lot of these songs. And like I said, Mark Cohen was on... Uh, Four of them, I think, uh, co-writing, uh, uh, not co-writing, but three of us on those. So me, okay. and John, uh, Mark, and uh, and uh, John, and the rest of it was just me and John taking our time and thinking about uh, experiences, life, and uh, continuity of what we were trying to say, and. Um, 
say it in a little bit broader way than just directing it toward one style of music. Right. And uh, I guess we accomplished that. Uh, we didn't know it would be accepted because it was so different from what was out there at the time. Right. But uh, we knew that we loved the songs, the melodic structure and the lyrical content and everything. And we didn't want to reinvent the wheel for Stax Records, but we dwelled on some of the ingredients that made Stax such an iconic uh, fixture in music, right. which is the horn sections and all of that. And right. I wanted to keep that involvement, but make it fresh and, and, and uh, new. So right. uh, I, I think that's what it was. And I was as surprised as anybody else to uh, be lucky enough to win uh, in the Americana arena, too. Right. So uh, it was just a joy. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite albums in recent years, and I think it stands alongside your greatest work. Um, Mr. Bell, it has been an absolute thrill getting to see you again today and, and talk about music, this time on mic. <laughs> oh, I, I, I love it. Uh, being here with you and uh, of course I'm following in your career <laughs> I expect and put this on you right now I expect to hear great things from you because you've got the talent to do it I've worked with you in songwriting and everything and the, the singing abilities and all of that it's all in you so I'm expecting great things <laughs> Thank you so much. That All means right. a great deal. And uh, next time we'll do this over Cognac. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Take care. And there you have it. Thanks so much for listening, y'all. My name is Chris Milam, and you can find me easily on social media at Chris Milam or at Chris Milam Music. My email is chris at chrismilam.com. Thanks so much to Mr. William Bell for joining me today and to our presenting sponsor, Audible, and our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. The mix is produced by the OAM Network in Memphis, Tennessee, and is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks. See you next time. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast.